Hey gang, welcome to episode 198 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro studio, aka my kitchen table here in Los Angeles, California. This week on the show, we travel to New York City where Catherine Yu, our managing editor, interviews Evan Nyden, the founder and creator of Candle House Collective. Uh, Evan has been doing these, um, I almost want to call them phone stories, but he's been doing these these uh, character encounters over the phone, uh, what we kind of categorize as remote. Uh, like, where where is this happening? It's happening remote. I don't know why we call it remote, but it's it's either on the phone or it's online. It's, it's part of this category of experiences that people have been playing with a lot lately in part because you know hey you you don't need to have space to do them in you just need to have a way to interact with folks so it's part of a wave of work uh caitlin here in la has been doing it uh with her uh her online shows uh there's uh the aluminum cat i think did i get that right um I'm like going by memory, uh, which is another online piece. And, and oftentimes, um, some of these pieces, they're, they're, they run uh, for long periods of time. Uh, and others of them, like Evan's work, kind of are these moments. They happen over a weekend here or there. They're created and then they're gone. They're ephemeral. Um, I have not had a chance to experience his work yet. I hear absolutely wonderful things. I know Lauren Bellow has reviewed a couple of them for us. Lauren is a big fan. Uh, Lauren has good taste, so uh, I defer to uh, her on this one. And at some point, Evan, if you're listening, at some point, you know, um, let's, uh, let me know what's up. I want to, I want to know how these goes. These goes. Oh, man. Okay. I'm going to talk to y'all a bit on the back end of this episode about where I'm at, where my head's at, uh, what's going on uh, as we plunge forward here. Uh, been been a, been some wonderful things and also some rough rides uh, in the past, uh, recent past. But uh, let's go do some quick good news, uh, which is where we're standing with the Patreon. So the Patreon right now, we're standing at $1,347 a month with 237 backers, which is great. And we're getting so close to 250 backers. Um, I... I want to fully fund one day sooner than later so that I don't have to run around and like do freelance gigs and all this other stuff. Uh, but that being said, um, I'm really excited by the fact that we are just 13 backers away from having 250 backers because that feels significant and it feels like a point where we can start kind of spreading our wings again. Uh, it's always this sort of dynamic of, you know, bringing people into the core and, and delivering more and then spreading out. And right now we're in this moment where we need to bring people into the core and deliver more. But in a, pretty soon we're going to get to start spreading out again. Um, Lori Meeker and Ryan Omark, thank you for jumping on and being our latest backers. And uh, everybody, keep your ears, uh, who are Patreon backers, uh, keep your ears and your eyes 
tuned on the Patreon uh, because uh, the Irregular will resume its function uh, next week. Uh, now that some of uh, the rockiest parts of uh, this month are over with, and there's some uh, really fun stuff coming up, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do some experiments here. Um, the whole point of me leaving the day job is to both build more infrastructure, but also to get to spend more time here in No Pro Land and making more things for you. And I'm excited about the ability to do that. More in a moment. The sustaining backers of No Presidium are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Herstan, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. Thank you all, gentlemen. Quick note on the audio situation here. Because of where they were recording, Catherine wound up being a little bit off mic, but you can totally understand the entire thing. It's just it's just one of those things. One of those things. We're gonna we're gonna work on getting some uh, equipment for Catherine. She doesn't know that yet. Oh, guess she knows that now. Just gives a little time. I wanna I wanna improve things around here. I'm in that mood. All right, let's go. Evan Nyden, creator and founder of Candle House Collective. So, Evan, um, can you describe what Candle House is? Candle House Collective is a theater company that is that creates personalized, individual, immersive encounters uh, that are customized and fully responsive, fully interactive um, for a often a solo audience member. And how did you come to start Candle House? So, I kind of came from two or three different directions at once, um, and Candle House was found at the intersection of all of them. Um, there were sort of two, and then one joined up later. The first was a background, a family background of traditional folk storytelling. Uh, I grew up in a I grew up in a family for which uh, stories were kind of an integral integral part of um, of how they you know, brought up brought up their, the next generation, how they passed information down, which I think is the case for a lot of families. It just, you know, mine, I know mine in particular, it was kind of one, one of the main things that united us, both immediate family and uh, sort of extended. Um, stories were always sort of the first line of communication. Um, the second sort of route was this fascination I developed pretty early on with alternate reality games. Um, we're, we're talking, you know, um, alternate reality games comprised of a Gmail account and a couple of distorted PNGs with binary on them, you know, on Reddit or something, um, of which I've made a few, I'm not going to lie. Um, and uh, those two things led me, I think, pretty, pretty evenly to immersive theater. Um, finding where those two sort of phenomena feeling as um, feeling the sort of raw meaning behind hearing a story, especially with all of the significance and context behind it. Um, and the sort of participatory element of an alternate reality game feeling literally pulled into another reality through your computer screen or your phone screen. Um, those led me to immersive theater. 
I saw The Grand Paradise by Third Rail Projects. Um, the, the, I stumbled on the word immersive, and I looked it up, and, surpri- and, and that was the first thing that came up. Interesting, because I think now the first three Google pages are all punch drunk, sleep no more, but um, that just happened to be the, the sponsored um, link. I clicked on it and was... I, I went to see it, and that was it. I mean, it was one of the most incredible experiences I had ever had. Still probably one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. That that piece was incredibly transformative. But the combination of those three things, of traditional storytelling, alternate reality games, and sort of how they came together in, together in immersive theater, um, made me very interested in how this form could be used to explore stories that had the agency and um, immersion... In, in sort of more familiar sacred spaces, like the home, like the, like a, the, sh- the screen of your computer, um, as well as the, uh, the sort of meaning and individuality that comes out when somebody tells you a story, that you as the listener feel when somebody is telling you a story. There is a connection in the simple act of storytelling that is in my opinion, at least, unlike any other form of human connection and one that can transcend a lot of more what, what might be considered usable or typical um, forms of, of sharing and of communication. So somehow you got from ARGs and the Grand Paradise to making your own work, so maybe we can start to talk about your first project. And I'm going to disclaim this, that... Uh, everything on the Candle House roster will never be remote again, so we're giving away all of the spoilers and secrets, or at least as many of the secrets that Evan is willing to tell <laughs> us. So, so you've been inspired, you've started researching, you're melding your love of ARGs and theater and storytelling. So what comes next? Uh, in terms of, are we talking about Last Candle? Yeah. Um, okay, so, so Last Candle... Um, began on January 1st, 2018 at 4 a.m. Oh my god. Um, what? 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 <laughs> I was still awake, so it was it was after New Year's festivities sort of thing. Um, that particular year, I had decided to, um, you know, I, I was going to sort of watch the all the coverage on TV. I was, I was at a, 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 a gathering of some kind, and um, I do not remember where, but um, I... It came down to maybe 11.53 or something, and I kind of just left. Because it felt, and not for any bad reason, I, I just wanted to sort of feel a New Year's, a, a kind of a new year come to pass by myself, just to see what it felt like, you know, because we, I mean, I've, I've learned to assign, I had learned to assign so much significance to that, that I, um, I, I wanted to know, like, is, is this a phenomena that hits just as readily when we're not sharing it with other people? So I, I just went out. I walked around. I walked around Central Park, actually. Um, and I uh, I was out there. Clock struck 12. Saw the fireworks going off oh, in yeah, Times Square. Oh, yeah, because they have the, um, they have the race, the midnight race in, oh. in Central Park. That's what the fireworks are for. Oh, I, I didn't yeah, even know about that. Yeah, there's always like a 5K or something. Oh, I was just <laughs> circling the perimeter. But good to know. I'll check well, that out. I, I suppose the fireworks were, were for you. The only person alone in Central Park at midnight. On I, I, mean, I doubt I was, but, um, but, uh, but I, I was out there and uh, I kind of just stayed there for a really long time by myself. And at approximately four a.m., I because you know when when 
as soon as it hit midnight, and I just sat down, and I took out, I, I carry sometimes this little, like, black book around with me with a little pen, and I just started writing. Um, and there were... Part of me just wanted to write the story. I was trying to write out this word that wouldn't leave my mind, the word apprentice, um, that, w that would not kind of escape from between my ears. And for some reason, I kept writing that word along with what I wanted to actually write down just to tell it back to myself, which was the story of the Princess of the Frog. Don't know why, still to this day, do not know why those two things came together. Um, I, all I know is that at approximately 4 a.m. that day, I um, made an Instagram account um, out of the blue called Last Candle ARX, um, and I posted a photo on it of this um, kind of sculpture thing that I'd seen somewhere, just a silhouette of a sculpture reaching up into, into just a sky full of clouds. The exposure was such that it looked like it was just kind of reaching up into a blank space or a blank piece of paper. And at that point, I had no idea where I was going with it. I had these three pieces of information in front of me. I had this Instagram with this one picture. I had... Um, I don't even know if I posted that yet, and I, and I had my notebook with the word apprentice written over and over and over, and the story of the princess and the frog. And I let that Instagram sit for a while. I sort of, you know, started following people. I, um, I put one other picture on it, a little um, picture of a fairy tale book that I have at home, um, just a, a Grimm's fairy tale compendium with these gorgeous illustrations. Um, and one of them, one of them was for the Princess and the Frog, and it was them reaching down into a lake or something for a golden ball, and uh, that she lost, that he helped her get get back. And um, I posted that, and with the caption, uh, something like, uh, "I want to help you um, DM me with your name and phone number to begin." Oh wow! So you just you just went for it. Well, the thing is, at that point, like by the time I posted that, I had an idea in my head of this is a there's a story here. And I and, and I think the this kind this story is not something I want to write out. This is a story that I you know I, I want to see what storytelling looks like when it's conversational, um, not not in the way that I do now. You know, not in the sort of uh, just fully um, uh, responsive and you know just more in a what does a story look like when it when it's developed in response to um, to what people are saying, not necessarily improving story, but creating it based on how people are interacting and what, and kind of how they, the inspiration that we find in it together. Um, so at that point I started uh, writing, continuing to write, it was sort of a stream of consciousness exercise almost, um, and continuing to write the story of the Princess and the Frog that just fell apart as I kept writing it. Um, it you know, it was the story of the Princess and the Frog and then it wasn't. It was the the I was kind of writing two versions of the same story at the same time. It was one was from the princess's perspective, the other was the frog's, because there's a moment at which the two of them are separate. You know, before they know each other, the princess is playing with her golden ball. The frog, you never see in the story before he meets her, but he's got to be there. You know, so I was just sort of writing these two stories in tandem of the princess and the frog, one from each perspective, and the feelings that came with that were feelings of betrayal and and kind of and rage 
because I was looking at this story from the from the individual perspective of, of these two people in this constant conversation. Like the, the individual characters, just their perspective, not kind of like the reader or storyteller as like a third party kind of looking down, like that God's eye view. Exactly, like that that sort of very grim fairy tale voice of you know the the voice of God telling you what happened. It's almost it's very biblical in a way, which which is you know cool to sort of have a basis to convey them, but. Um, but I was I was so interested in the fact that reading down these two, I would read down each one and say, "This is a this is a horrible not like a bad story, but it's a horrible story just in the term in terms of it is a it's horrible the things that they do to each other, you know. One lies and betrays, the other manipulates and 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 um, kind of gaslights a little bit. It's um, it's dark, it's dark yeah. and, but it's not one of the stories that, that is kind of accepted to be, oh, the, the original Grimm version was dark. I mean, at least not from the people I've talked to. I mean, because we know there's one of the princess, I forget which one, it's I think maybe Cinderella, where the birds peck out the stepsister's eyes at the end. It's like a happy ending. Um, but no, a lot of them are dark, uh, to, you know, to the nth degree. And this one, people don't really look at as dark because the worst thing that, ha- the worst thing that happens, in air quotes, is... Um, she throws the frog against a wall, which is not very nice. But also what leads up to that is, is insane. And, and I started seeing them less as, you know, these two opposing forces that would just bounce off of each other and really as two separate entities. And as soon as I started doing that, at least in my head, the story didn't work anymore. Um, there was no reason for the... Um, for the princess to keep her promise, you know, if because and, and there would be no, um, you know, except for the, in the story, the frog goes back and um, to, to the king um, and says, "Your daughter betrayed me like this and this." But the frog has been alone for so long. I don't know if to me it didn't feel, at least for the way I was sort of putting it together, re-putting it together, it didn't feel natural to. It, it didn't. It didn't feel. It felt like something used to tell a story rather than something that comes from the heart. Because I, I, I think that somebody who's been alone for that long, loneliness is something I hope we'll get into later, because, um, but for, for somebody who's been alone for that long, the frog has just been in the forest all alone for so long uh, and used to be, has a frame of reference, has this vague memory of a, of a reality that has long since been dismantled. Um, you know, being a prince at one point, and then, and then um, that vague memory of when things were different, that little glimmer of hope, that I don't know if once he felt that betrayal, if he would just keep going down that avenue. Because that, that, kind, of, that kind of rage that, that felt to me like it was definitely going to be there on both of their parts, the rage, the indignance, the feelings of betrayal would inspire a lot more than a, a visit to a castle door. You know what? So instead, they both started going on these searches, their retrospective searches for what they thought justice looked like, because they both felt so betrayed and so and uh, betrayed by one another, and that they had been treated so unjustly by one another. Um, yeah, at that point, um, I, I had a pretty. We had kind of all the par- participants um, locked and loaded and ready to go. That's awesome. So <laughs> how, how did people find you just through this Instagram? Um, I mean, I, I, one would assume, because there was a spike after a while. We, we were, I mean, 
this was back when it was literally just me. You know, I, I, um, I, I was accepting participants for about a month, um, pretty much until the end of January, because, you know, it was pretty slow going. And I was like, we can do more than this. We can do a little more than this. And then it was, you know, maybe 15, 17, 45. Gigantic spike. I don't know how it happened. There was there was no... We didn't, like, release any other publicity, things like that, but I think people just started paying attention. And it was that kind of... I think it was a word-of-mouth sort of sensation. Um, sensation. It, uh... It was a word of mouth kind of thing because I think, um, but I know at least from the reportage that I've heard that pretty much everybody stumbled upon it. You know, they saw that this account had followed them, so they went to investigate. You know, it was it was what I had always wanted to you know to experience at the beginning of an immersive piece is no sort of. Is, is no, like, out-of-world, here, let's put you in where, you know, you're right here, and now we'll start. Because I had seen that, and I'd seen it done really well, and I didn't want to also do that. Because, you know, it had been done. What I, what I hadn't seen much of yet was coming in direct into the world from just not having, not knowing anything about it, not having anything to do with it, and your first, I, you know, I guess it goes back to the ARG thing, because ARGs do that all the time. The trailhead is already in-world. This was sort of my version of a, a trailhead. Was um, you know usually they they might be ciphers to solve things like that for me. It was just send me your phone number. Let's chat. You know. Um, and then you just started chatting with fifty people. Yes. Um, so I yeah. I mean they sent me their phone numbers. I started calling people. Um, this was before I had written anything concrete down. Uh, like, I just had what I'd written in my notebook, things like that. And gradually, as I went through, I started asking... I just asked questions that I, I felt were relevant to the moment. And not even relevant to the moment, just questions that I could... that I could hear in their voice. Um, I, don't, that it, I don't know if it makes much sense. It really doesn't make much sense to me either. But it's... Um, these... I, I each phone call, each first phone call that somebody got were f- a set of four questions uh, that I kind of um, eventually put together but just ended up being the same because I, I wanted to know. Um, and uh, people answered those questions and as they did, as they answered the questions and I had this this context of the princess and the frog and um, the word apprentice ringing in my mind, you know, it just... Um, which is the name that I put on the Instagram. You know, Last Candle IRX was the username, and then the name itself was Apprentice. Uh, as I was going down these two sort of stories, coming into it with these feelings of, of, of um, two stories split apart by rage and betrayal and regret and um, all, these, all these epic emotions, you know, and, and seeing how that translated into just asking somebody a few questions. You know, what, what questions would I want to know if I already, if I, if, if, if I were sort of inhabiting the mentality that they felt like that and I felt like that. If they felt the way that that sort of betrayal, whatever. But, you know, those emotions that, that, that sound so epic, I think we all experience them at one, at one point or another in, in totally different forms. Um, so from one person who has experienced those feelings to another, asking those questions 
in that emotional context, asking those questions as a way to very subtly explore what it was that drove those emotions. Not like where they came from or anything, that all came later, but um, just what those emotions felt like, tasted like, smelled like, you know? It, um, it was this sort of, I don't know, I, the, the beginning of the experience, it's ironic because, um, you know, Candlehouse Collective was named for the original experience, but um, the, the beginning of the experience felt more than anything like smoke, you know? Like uh, this sort of opaque cloud that you that your hand would go right through if you tried to touch it, so you just watch it instead and um, kind of influence it with your hands. If that makes sense. So it's weird too because I I, I think about the way that you structure experiences, and then I think about how seldom myself and people younger than me talk on the phone anymore. <laughs> Um, so do you feel like people were comfortable doing that? Do you, do you feel like they were being honest with you? That, And granted, you've probably learned a lot since then, but like, how did those initial phone calls feel? Was it you, what you expected? <laughs> so, you know, um, see, I've always, I've always loved talking on the phone. Um, uh, just, to, just to be painfully self-referential for a moment, um, in Crossed Wires, the operator says something about... Um, it was, it, was, it was always, you know, relatively different, but the point remained the same. Um, on the phone, we never have to be too human, just human enough. Because, you know, texts, emails, um, all, all, all sort of forms of text-based communication um, can I, I get a little impersonal, you know? Even, even with all the kind of shortcuts and um, the emojis, the designs, the, the new elements of, lingu of like language that we've introduced into text to try and make it more personable. It still always feels a little, a little detached. There's a lot of room for misinterpretation, not, which is not to say there's not room for misinterpretation everywhere else. Um, but so there's that, that feeling, at least for me, of something being a little too impersonal. Then by contrast, talking to people in person, there's always that, at least for me, there's always been this anxiety of physical presence. Um, I've always preferred having a voice to having a body. Um, I, I would love to be kind of a haunted mansion ghost host situation. Um, I, uh, I think that in person we have to perform humanity with our whole selves. We, well, we don't necessarily have to, but there is pressure to. And um, we have to perform humanity physically, verbally, um, with, those, with those sort of little gestures behind the eyes and things like that. And I've found that while I have, just as a person, I, I've had some sort of, I'm a very gesticulation with my hands kind of person, so I've had some difficulty um, in the past with people interpreting um, and, 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 you know, with coming across as I intend to, to come across. Um, but I've never had much difficulty doing that using my voice. It's the one thing I've always felt confident using. So I grew up sort of seeing phone calls as the perfect form of communication. I loved and continue to love talking to people on the phone because if it's if 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 you sort of if you both find the right headspace, I think it's one of the most com comfortable and human conversations you can have somebody, with someone because they don't feel the need necessarily to perform anything. Um, 
those first three phone calls did feel, they did feel a little tense because I could tell that the participants, a lot of them were immersive veterans. So they were coming in with expectations because there is an expectation in, you know, you get a, you get a no caller ID phone call from any, anything remotely immersive. Um, there is an expectation for what you're getting into. Um, there was, there was something, I, I think Lauren wrote it in her article about, um, how, how the sort of norm, the kind of norm is for phone-based interactions in immersive theater to be kind of quick to jump. And, um, you know, you are, you are told to make decisions that you don't fully understand the consequences of, and then by the time you do understand the consequences of them, um, it's too late, you know, and, and you're kind of berated for choices that, um, are, that, are, that are not really, that you really didn't have um, the context to understand. Um, it's, it's, that's actually not really something I ever experienced with, uh, like any, any experience I did that had remote, um, interaction was, they did a pretty good job. Um, but the, um, that sentiment definitely remained that I could see that there were expectations and when, and it took people, it took me not meeting those and going in a different direction for people to start paying attention. Um, because I was coming from it not really knowing or wanting to do anything like what I had seen because that's been done and been done well um, and just sort of wanting to introduce something different something something that kind of came from my heart my gut a little bit and uh, when people kind of figure that out all at different paces all at different points they started letting their guard down because I think for some of them they were genuinely like oh okay I this one's different. Yeah, well, this experience is not like two, three, the the last whatever the games that I've played or exactly. Games I've gone to. And that's um that's not to say they're all the the same because of course they're not. I mean, there's plenty of incredibly varied experiences out there with with remote elements. But um, the fact that I you know the, the experience was called Last Candle ARX. You know, N A R X. You kind of added that connotation. Like there was that expectation from oh well, if I'm an ARX ARG person. It's going to be like this because the last eight that I've done were similar. Which was funny because at first, all the people who joined up, I think, were people who were already, you know, uh, there's that thing, you know, people in, in the immersive community calling themselves like ARG people or not ARG people or things like that. At first, it was just people who were, you know, ARG people. But then, that, remember that spike? Um, as soon as that spike happened, it was just this broader assortment of people, a lot of whom we'd followed, but um, but it was this assortment, because I right. think they were like talking. A, a broader audience, not necessarily people who were in it looking for puzzles or some sort of puzzle element. Right, and, and the, I mean, there were a few puzzles, but that was never the focus. We, um, that was, the focus of the experience was never to... Um, was never to confuse people for the sake of confusing them or um, make them feel lost for the sake of making them feel lost. It was all in service of a narrative. And there was this story there was a, that, that um, had a lot more significance to me than The Princess and the Frog, but that ironically didn't come up until the end because it was just rattling away in the back of my head and I had forgotten about it until kind of a little bit through the experience. I was like, oh, wait, 
I, I remember that. And, 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 and images of candles and talking about fire had, con- had been coming in and in and in. And I was trying to understand where this pattern was coming from because there's no mention of fire in The Purchase and the Frog. There's no, what does the word apprentice have to do with that? So um, I was trying to figure out and then it hit me. There's this folktale from way, way, way back. Uh, this folktale called The Cottage of Candles which um, folks who did Last Candle and or Crossed Wires may remember. Um, It is a parable about, at its core, justice and um, the journey to find it. Um, And that sort of ultimate question, um, when searching for something as meaningful as justice, what's left if you don't like what you find? which that story sums up in this, in what I think is beautiful, but I remember for the first, you know, eight years of hearing it, I hated it. I hated that story because it drove me crazy. But it stuck. It stuck. I hated it, but it would not leave my mind. I hated it because, because and I, 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 I you know, I, I came up with all sorts of reasons why I hated it, but I think at the end I, I just hated it because I was like, oh God, that's me. That's everybody I know, you know, it's that this, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's all of us. It's searching and searching and, and getting hung up on this idea of, um, on, on whatever idea, I don't think it necessarily has to be justice, but on something, on forgiveness, on, um, on sort of the, on the ideal of creativity and, 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 and searching and searching for that and not realizing that searching for things meaningful, as meaningful as those, um, can only really be found on the interior. You know, not, not necessarily, a, it was inside you all along kind of thing, but, a, um, but that those are things that come from the inside out and not vice versa. Um, forgiveness was another big theme in Last Candle, and that is absolutely something that comes from the inside out. You know, it's, it's, it's something that you create, at least, you know, in, in my opinion, to relieve the burden from the, the burden of um, hatred or anger rage betrayal from somebody uh, from from yourself towards somebody else because it's just you carrying that around with you you know it's 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 carrying this weight that if 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 the dust is settled will not do anything else for you um, and that's that's I think more more of an interpersonal thing you know especially with interpersonal interactions um, looking for um, looking for forgiveness, um, or seeing it, or ironically, you know, constantly running away from it, um, can lead to going on a long and perilous journey that eventually just leads you back to yourself, and you may not like what you find. It's interesting to hear you say that as someone who recently went through your most recent piece, because it just kind of struck me that a lot of what's going on in at least the interactions I with the performers, we were kind of like validating each other's feelings and our own humanity. They would ask me if what, like, you know, um, did what I did to this other person, is that terrible? Am I a bad person? And like, then it's kind of like holding up a mirror by interacting with that performer. So I don't know if that's what you were intended to do. Um, I think that there are. Um, there are many forms of connection, many ways to connect. Um, storytelling's a big one, and it, and it contains multitudes within itself, but, um, 
it there there are other there there are other ways and there are ways contained within storytelling. Like I said, there's there's um and I think some of that is validation. You know, valid validation and more than validation, I think a mutual understanding um is definitely a very intimate form of connection. And it's one that isn't that can't ever be attained immediately. It's it's over time. It's built. It's sort of it's again what Lauren said in that in that beautiful review of hers, the um uh, constructing something side by side with a participant and actor and creator, because that's what we want to do. That's what Last Candle was, literally speaking, and what um Cross Wires and, and Moonlight Serenade are meant to be more metaphor- metaphorically speaking, um, and to a degree literally speaking as well, just crafting something alongside the participant rather than for them or behind them, for them to sort of fall back into, um, creating something with them and then standing back, having a moment with each other to understand what has just been created, and then forever being able to... And then being able thereafter to go forward with that new construction, new assemblage inside oneself that didn't exist before. Um, I guess you could say it's our version of a souvenir. It's interesting you say that also because what I found was, at least doing Moonlight Serenade, um, after the calls stopped, I kind of felt this profound sense of loss that I would never talk to those people again I would never find out what happened next. And I know that there's definitely like, there's an art to leaving things somewhat ambiguous and unresolved at the end of the story, but I also just kind of missed talking to those people. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard that feedback before. Um, it, never in those words. Um, it's always been more, oh God, what happened to them? You know, it's, it's, it's investment in the, in the story, but I, I think... That is something we ran into, um, surprisingly, especially with, uh, with Last Candle. Um, it was a little different because all three characters met various kinds of ends, not death, necessarily. Um, I mean, The Apprentice, absolutely. But the other two, no. Um, I, uh, they all met some kind of end, and, and it, it was a five-month-long project, too. So these were connections that had been built up and built up and built up and remained even after the people themselves were in one way or another destroyed or dismantled. But Crossed Wires, we did experience some of that, because three days is, is a long time until you realize it's not, you know? Maybe we should um, take a step back and explain... Crossed wires. I don't think we've actually talked about it, even though we've been talking. I'm so sorry. I'm <laughs> okay, so sorry. I don't know. Um, it's me. You blame me. <laughs> so, you did this five month long last candle experience. Mm-hmm. Your, your first time trying to meld together your influences and your inspirations and the princess and the frog and the candle and the apprentice. With the with the um the uh, with last candle with the mm-hmm. vocal talents and um and uh, uh kind of worldly contributions of Jonathan Connolly and John Erdman, who the three of us were actually the directing team on Moonlight Serenade. John Erdman joined us again. We were all three reunited. It was so much fun. Um, But yeah, so they were, they were kind of, they were the first two people who, to join me on, on this, um, what do you call it? Uh, Quest. (laughs) Quest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Um, so the first half of 2018, you're doing Last Candle mm -hmm. and then you take a, what seems like a very short break to do crossed wires in the fall. Yes. 
Crossed wires. Um, I... I only ever was writing it at night. I remember that. I would, I would only ever write it between the hours of 12 a.m. and 4 a.m. That, that was the only time any writing got done. And I got pages and pages done, but it was only those times. And not because of, you know, just because at any other point I couldn't get the words out. It had to be in that kind of liminal, you know, space. We talk about that a lot, I mean. Um, but that liminal space when the, the monsters under the bed start to come out, or when they're used to coming out. And if you're not asleep, you're going to meet them head on. You know, that's how I've always seen it. There, there's, always, there's always monsters under the bed. There's always... Um, Shadow, whatever is lurking in the shadows. Exactly. You don't know exactly. You don't want to know exactly. Well, yeah, it's, um, and those monsters come out at night, you know, nightmares, sleep paralysis, etc. But, um, but if you're not asleep, sometimes it can be even worse. Because a nightmare you get to wake up from. But, at least with my experiences, if you know, if I was, if I'm already awake, which at those hours I am more and more, um, they just come out anyway, because it's their time. And if you're awake, that means you don't get to experience them in the sort of discreetly cut off um, celluloid of dreamscape. You just confront them in the room where you, where I spend most of my time anyway. You know, like a bedroom or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I know it's 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 a it's one hell of a metaphor, but um, but yeah, it um, crossed wires was an immensity of a of of not necessarily uh, uh, mostly of just of an emotional awakening. Um, writing that was definitely like one of the, one of the most transformative. And working on that process was one of the most transformational things I think I've ever done. Um, it, I mean, do you want me to explain? Yeah, I mean, spoil as much as you want to. Sure. So, um, Cross Wires was a three-day, um, assortment of three different, um, short experience, kind of an anthology of three different short experiences, short story-ish feeling, um, but our version of what, you know, a short story looks like. Um, so there was a... There were three. There was Exjeo, Collect Call, and Now and Later. So Exjeo was um, was an encounter with a a summoning process at an encounter with a sort of spirit, soul, uh, consciousness trapped between here and hereafter. Um, some this sort of tight constricting, suffocating liminal space and um, stuck between two voices. Um, and, and it was, uh, you know, if, if ever I were desi to design an experience that was kind of a puzzle to be figured out, it was probably that one. Because over time, it went from being this sort of horror movie feeling, kind of, you know, somebody gasping into your ear. What I loved, what, one of the big things I loved doing in Crossed Wires was leaning into stereotypes in every possible stretch of the imagination because that was the easiest way for people to, uh, to like, quote, understand what they were getting themselves into. And, like, oh, I know where I stand in this situation. Okay, I'm talking to an evil spirit. Here, I know how to deal with this. And as soon as they got comfortable with that, as soon as they, as soon as they became um, uh, sort of 
they, re- they relaxed a little. They, well, they they relaxed because it's it's um you know I think it uh, for for a lot of people it becomes easier to relax when when you understand something you know when you know the ins and outs of something, and the trick was to sort of lean into that stereotype and then have it evaporate and and show them what was left, you know. So they were talking to this malevolent spirit. Uh, who kind of kept oscillating as the call went on between two different voices, the voice of an, um, of a kind of this violent, you know, gory, gory, gorily descriptive um, nightmare sleep paralysis voice to, um, to the voice of somebody who's just really scared and doesn't know where they are and is reaching out to see if, and, and, and they were both not terribly lucid, but, um, they both sort of conveyed little parts of the story, and eventually um, what the story came to was this was a person who was stuck in this liminal place because they couldn't move on because they were tethered back to sort of the world of the living by the voice of the person who they were in a relationship with, who was also the person who took their, who killed them. Um, there were, it was this sort of story of this soul stuck between places because coming from, you know, a, you know, the, the, the soul like coming from a, having, having just sort of exited the world in the midst of a, an abusive relationship that just escalated and escalated and escalated and, you know, this, it led to this horrible thing of, of, um, <clears throat> you know, being, uh, murdered, um, is stuck because they can't let go of the voice of the, of the abuser in their head. They can't let go of the voice of the person who they were in the relationship with. And yet they're still clinging to their own. And they can't tell at times which is their voice and which is the voice of the person that they're in the relationship with. Um, and that's what's holding them back. That's what's tethering them back to the world of the living because they can't, they couldn't move on with that voice still in their head. They couldn't move on without, um, Kind of crossing that name out for good and uh, and breaking the tether and uh, and moving to whatever happens after, um, even if that's just you know peace. Um, so there was that. Uh, that was Exchao. Um, now and later, what featured um, Jack Drummond and Natalie Welber um, as sort of, what did Lauren call it, a perverse uh, game of escape room meets interrogation. <laughs> I really appreciated that. I, I love her writing. Um, but it was, um, it was this sort of back and forth uh, um, psychological experiment, you know, where you, you were piped into this cellar and talked to... Um, and you, and you talk to this, this lawyer named Maxwell, who was, is chained to the wall and can't figure out how to get out. And periodically, this other voice pipes in, uh, you know, uh, the, um, the voice of this sort of um, what some people call this kind of 1950s commercial housewife voice, uh, which, is, which it's, was another stereotype of somebody, of, which was another example of somebody leaning into a stereotype to break it. Um, this housewife voice that people immediately kind of recognize, oh, I know who that is. Uh, but she was the person keeping the lawyer prisoner. And um, they sort of had this 
back and forth. Um, they weren't talking to each other. They, they were using the participant. She was using the participant as the variable in her experiment. Um, she wanted to figure out uh, how the participant would approach a situation like, you know, a life or death situation with and without the context of injustice. Um, so as the experience went on, the story came into being, you know, and again, this comes back to the importance of stories, because at the beginning you're going to be like, okay, so she's, you know, because she's leaning into a stereotype, he's also leaning into a stereotype, um, and because of that, you know, okay, I'm supposed to not like her, I'm supposed to like him. And then she starts telling you her story. And because she already conforms to the stereotype you're, you, that you, that I don't mean to say you isn't you, but... Um, but like an audience member might let their guard down. Exactly, and, and, and listen to her story as, oh, she's doing the, you know, the torment monologue, you know? But it also meant that some people didn't listen until it was too late. They didn't notice the fact that all the little stories she was telling, until later, they didn't notice that all the... And some, a lot of people did, you know, they, they were immediately... Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people who see things like this become very detective, which I appreciate. It's a, it's a really, um, it's fun to see people do that because it's never really what I design these things in in service of. You know, I, I don't design these things to you know have people play detective, but if they want to, that's that's their choice. That's how they choose to experience it. They just don't need to. Um, but it's it's fine if they do, and it works. You know. Um, and so she was conveying these stories to you about Halloween candy poisonings. Really, like, true cases of Halloween candy poisonings, one after the other after the other. Uh, she went to the, the Tylenol murders in Chicago. She went to the um, uh, Dr. Shine in Fremont, California, who, uh, who put um, uh, aloe, who put little aloe pills in, um, in children's candy bags, which um, I, I'm... I believe in severe, in, in, in extreme quantities can be used as a severe laxative and induce major internal bleeding. And this group of concerned parents sent a bunch of their, a bunch of their older kids to just his, just his house to see, yeah, I should have mentioned one other thing. The guy was a dentist. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sean was a dentist. Um, handing out poisonous candy to children. And they found that it was him and stuff like that. He only got six months, six, yeah, six months of jail time. Wow. I think it's six months. That, I may be confusing that with another one of the cases, but it was, but it was to that level. You know, it was, I mean, and these are not instances that are unfamiliar, unfortunately. Um, but in, in that particular case, you know, that, that it, it just, um, it was one of the, the first, um, it's, it's one, no, sorry, not one of the first, but it was, it's one of those stories that is often overlooked, because, you know, nobody, I mean, nobody really got hurt, even though they did, but people say they did, you know. So she tells that story, she tells all these stories, and then she tells the story of Maxwell. And goes into the same story, it's the same exact story, you know. They're a very sort of um, well-off um, gentleman handing out certain kinds of, handing out now and laters. Um, that he soaked in in poison because his gated community opened up, um, open decided to open their doors for um, you know kids from from uh, like, exactly trick or treating in his community. 
Exactly. And, you know, specific, and because the gated community was like, well, why don't we reach out to other neighborhoods where, like, trick-or-treating might not be safe, things like that. And he did not. She, she says he did not like that. Um, so he's, you know, it was a deterrent to keep. And, and as you hear this story, and you're helping him get out all this time. You're, like, helping him decide, do I go left, do I go right? And she tells you what's, what's on the left, what's on the right, in sort of her vague terms. Like, if he goes to the left, he's going to lose an appendage. He goes to the right, he's going he's gonna to experience a minor paralysis for the rest of his life. What do you want to do? You know, setting people up for the decision they're going to make and then forcing them to make it. Um, there was, of course, a third option. He could have just stayed in the room and let the house burn down around him, which they also knew was going to happen. So whatever they choose, you know, it's, that, that's the other thing is, is rarely is anything ever binary. You know, that's, that's something that I think in, in work that is agency-based, I, I definitely want to see a lot more of, is decisions and, um, and uh, moments of narrative importance that aren't left or right, uh, you know, um, good or bad, uh, this color or that color. Like, moments that, moments that are big decisions that don't necessarily have to be binary. They can just be based on how you behave in the moment or how you, um, or... Whether you're whether or not you're willing to think outside the box, and you're presented with a binary, but you choose a third thing, you know. Um, and there were people that did. There were people that just let him sit there and let the house burn down, because there were a few people that just believed her right off the bat. There were a few people who didn't believe her at all. But most people kind of went down that path of slowly but surely doubting Maxwell, the voice that they came to trust at the beginning, and starting to trust her because she was telling this story that, that was becoming recognizable to them, making a pattern and then fulfilling it. Um, and then by the end, she let the participant decide whether or not they were going to let him out or let him die, let him out of the basement. And, and, and she made good on her word. You know, if they, if they gave him the code and, and let him out, he left. Uh, he, yeah. um, but if she didn't, if, if, if he, if, and they, the, it was just the code for the cellar door, um, and there were, there were some people that did, some people that didn't. People that didn't, house just burned down with him with it, in it. Um, the people that did, the house burned down, and it was only her in there. So it was either both of them or just her. Wow, Evan. <laughs> um, I see why you could only write these stories between the hours of midnight and 4 <laughs> Um... And sorry, I know I'm going on forever, so just keep the last one super brief. Um, but also, I mean, this was, this was, I'll keep it brief mostly because it's, it, of the three, I think this one was the most personal for me writing it and for, I think, each participant who went through it. Almost each participant who went through it. Um, there's the, the sort of second slash last experience, because it was in two parts, was Collect Call. Um, it was a conversation with a, uh, with a man named Andy Miller, played by the incomparable Jonathan Connolly, um, who was an inmate at the Texas State Penitentiary on death row. And he's calling you, using his last two phone calls to call you with 24 hours left to live and no idea how to spend them. And what follows is an hour, what followed was an hour-long conversation in which the participant had a conversation with him about his story, about, about his, about where he came from, what he wanted to do, you know, that it was, it was pretty open-ended, and um, ultimately helped him to plan out his last 24 hours. And they got it. Hmm? So you're saying this performer did an hour-long one-on-one? Yeah. With each participant? Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's and it was you know it was um, there was there was the story and there was the there was the um, the hmm, um, the sort of figuring things out at the end. But yeah, it was a, it was a one on one. And for some people, it just was the story. You know, some people just wanted to listen, and I understand that. You know, and some people. It was completely a conversation. And what we do, what I do whenever I'm writing is, is and, and, and sort of crafting these experiences, is make sure that no matter what, you know, no matter how much or little people want to participate, they will still get a full experience, you know? Um, I mean, you know, there's, uh, to quote the website, um, in, for our projects, involvement is expected and investment is rewarded, but... Um, but it, which I know is a familiar adage for a lot of immersive theater goers, but uh, in, in different forms. But, um, but it's true. I mean, we, we do expect people to have a basic level of involvement because they know what they're getting into. We, we describe the form relatively straightforward, straight, as a sort of straightforward sort of thing on our website. Everything else, we give you nothing. Like, I, I, I'll say this for the record. Uh, for anybody joining us um, for our for our next experience, um, you will not know anything going in. Uh, you will you will know the form, and you may know a tiny little bit about um, you know something about the interior. But we don't we don't give deep. I mean, when you were when you were um, when you were going through the, the the email process and the ticketing process and all that, you you probably saw that the um, the. The fact that we have, in, you know, we have a description, but there's nothing about the narrative on there. You know, it's yeah. you can try to get something from the title and some of the images mm -hmm. around what subject matter or topic might come up, mm -hmm. um, and then just knowing that it will be emotionally intense, and very, <laughs> very intimate. Yeah, well, um, yeah, and, and the the images, of course, um, from Moonlight Serenade, um, illustrated by the ever bewitchingly talented Daniel Hendon, um, the, uh, the, the, the sort of drawn, the hand-drawn imagery. Um, that looked like it was coming from uh, a notebook or Indeed, sort. yes. Um, I, he, he did a phenomenal job with the artwork. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so happy. He also played a council person Muska in, um, in the experience. Oh, person, oh. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a joy to work with him. It was just a joy to work with all of them. I mean, uh, work like this is... So consistently surprising and so consistently um, wonderful in terms of that word as a single word and also both those words full of wonder. It, it's indescribable, you know, being able to sort of create um, this work and, 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 and see it brought to life to this degree. Um, it's just, it's, um, and, and then to sort of, experience it alongside the participants, build it with the participants is something that I feel so unbelievably lucky to be able to do. And um, I, I just want to keep doing this because it, and, and you know, in different forms and keep surprising people because it is a, at least I know for me, it's, it's been, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It's a restorative experience. Um, and it feels you know, be, being on the phone with the participant or working with the actors or, you know, any, any, anything, any generative part of this process um, feels perpetually like 
I guess for me that's where home is. To be painfully self-referential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so maybe that's a good segue into Moonlight Serenade, which um, ended four days ago, and you're still upright and talking to me. <laughs> what Evan hasn't mentioned is that for this experience, he kind of bookends the conversations. Um, ah, well, yes. <laughs> so he's also a character, plus one of the directors, and a writer. <laughs> um, I, uh, yeah, I, I use the term, I use the term creator because, um, with this work, I feel like, I feel like it's not, it's not just the writing, you know, but, um, it's, it's sort of, it's crafting, it's, it's crafting an experience with the spaces in between, you know, which, I mean, writers do all the time. It's, it's just for this in particular, I, um, I also just like it because it's. I, I hear the word immersive creator a lot, and that's always stuck with me. I like that word immersive creator. Yeah. Um, it uh, it just because it it to me defines this sort of work as unique. Not not just Candlehouse, but immersive in general, which I think it absolutely is. I mean, I have a you know, there's a whole summit that'll you know <laughs> that, that I think will agree. Um, but it's it's so unique. Every, everything that everybody's doing in this field is just offers so much to the table and it's, it's so, it's, I am floored every day that, that I'm kind of able to work alongside them because it's, it's remarkable. Sorry, that wasn't the question you asked, but, um, I, I agree, but let's talk about Moonlight. Yes. Um, (laughs) Moonlight Serenade. So, um, so yes, uh, Moonlight Serenade and in response to what you were saying, yes, I, I do play in Crossed Wires and Moonlight Serenade, I play a character called the Operator who is about as meta as I have, as I'm okay with getting right now. Um, the operator is a, um, the operator is a lot of things. Um, in world scheduling, for one thing. Uh, Guide, administrator. (laughs) Um, takes on basically whatever character is needed is kind of my way of, of introducing both my my particular kind of storytelling and what is going to be asked of the participant. Um, there there are there's always kind of interaction at the beginning to sort of probe and um, and understand. And by the end of that call, inevitably, I understand somebody's level of um, willingness to be engaged. And you know that that comes from a lot of a lot of um, experimentation and things like that. But by now, I mean with, as soon as that first call is done really within the first, I mean, five minutes. I, I, I know exactly kind of where a person's, not limits are, because those, those are more hard, hard discovered, but um, where a person's kind of threshold is and how we can navigate around that. Um, so Moonlight Serenade uh, was also a three-day experience. Um, it was a, can't believe I'm talking about it in the past tense, um, <laughs> It was a three-day single narrative exploration of um, creativity, loneliness, ownership, and moving on. Um, And it sort of followed the story and interior life of a character by the name of Zephyr Burrow, also played by the wonderful Jonathan Connolly, um, who... uh, who is dealing with a lot of regret and um, a lot of the adverse 
damaging effects of loneliness. Um, in, in similarly to what I was talking about with Last Candle about you know justice, I like to take notions that are either blown up, blown up, or crushed in to the point where they don't seem that relevant. At this point, justice can justice. We hear justice. Um, Sometimes even I hear it, and I think to myself, well, that's a really lofty word. I mean, what do you actually mean? You know? Because it's a word that's used so often that it doesn't feel real anymore. You know? The word, just the word itself feels like, uh, whatever you say, you're, you're, um, it's a, it's a, it's a statement, you know? I, I, it's hard to put a question mark on the end of a word like that. But, um... But I want to say, no, what is, what is this actually? What, what, what does it mean on, a, on an individual level? Because at least for me, I feel, I feel like that's the, the easiest way to explore things like that, is explore things one-on-one. Explore things intimately, uh, you know, intimately and um, not think about them on such a huge scale. You know, start within and then guide oneself and one's peers, I suppose. Um, and, you know, that anybody can do, you know, guide without and, and see how that looks on the exterior, because you already know how it looks inside you. Um, to have that grounding, I think, is, is, is really helpful. Uh, the same thing is true, I think, of loneliness. Loneliness I, is a word that describes something that is a lot more damaging than I think the perception of the word allows it to sound. Um, it... It has, I mean, it has, you know, scientifically proven physical effects on people to say, to, you know, for one thing. Uh, loneliness has, you know, enormous health detriments. Um, physically, of course, um, mentally as well. Uh, it wreaks all kind of ha- kinds of havoc on somebody's humanity, you know, in, in the sort of physical realm and in the, the emotional realm, because... It is an incredibly damaging force, but it's not quick. You know, it, it's not a it's not a thing that we can pinpoint or see in a, in a way that other things maybe are. Um, and it's it's something that can, in large quantities, really change somebody and kind of crush somebody's spirit. To say you know to say nothing of the physical detriments. So for Moonlight Serenade, I, I really wanted to explore that. I wanted to explore the extent of loneliness, um, as well as that create, creation can be a lonely act, that it can be, that it can, it can feel isolated, that it can be isolating, you know, to generate, to put things out into the world means, means I think sometimes feeling really lonely and really, really isolated and, um, And how to find loneliness, find you know, see loneliness as something that can be used to construct rather than something that just makes you collapse in on yourself. Um, because it, it can. It's just really hard. Um, but it is possible. And, and the, one of the critical things for me was making the participant a, a, a major instrument in that for Zephyr and hopefully for themselves as well. Um, at the very beginning, I asked them, are you by any stretch of the imagination lonely? And um, 
whether people say yes or no, um, they still, I find, pretty consistently have had experiences where they were lonely, where they know what it feels like. And I think everybody knows deep, deep down that loneliness is, is more than it seems to be on the surface. Um, and re- rarely do we get to see people be lonely is the other thing, which was incredibly important to me with this too. You know, the conversation with Zephyr, the conversation with Bridget as well, um, the, uh, the, the, uh, the mother who lost her, who lost her son, um, were definitely really important to me to sort of explore and, um, explore what loneliness looks like when it isn't in service of something when it's just there, because sometimes it is, you know, and that's when it feels at its worst, you know, when you're, yeah, loneliness can be a tool to create something, but not if nothing is being created, not if nothing constructive is happening, sometimes it can just hurt, and to have a conversation with somebody, to be a, to be, to, to sort of explore that with them, explore um, what that is, and kind of maybe find that in oneself, or at the very least empathize or sympathize with, with what a person experiencing that is going through. It's something that I I think isn't explored enough and something that maybe could use a little more understanding because it it does change people and it's to the point where by the time they, you know, by the time we kind of see them again, by the time they come back into our perception, they're completely different and we don't know why. And that's the case for a lot of things, but, but loneliness in particular I think is shoved to the side a lot. And it does alter people. Um, which I think is why I made, you know, I wrote a whole story about a, a world in somebody's head um, standing still, and then as soon as it starts moving again, it falls apart. Because, you know, the, I, I think the only thing harder than existing kind of still in loneliness is trying to climb out of it. Um, which is, is sort of what Zephyr was trying to do throughout the throughout that experience, trying to climb out of that loneliness and I mean near the end there was definitely signs that he was going to get out, going to kind of find his way out and then a password protected file came about <laughs> and did you ever open the file? By the I, I did eventually. Okay. I realized I had misunderstood the original prompt and I was like, oh right. That's why that didn't make sense. <laughs> um but it yeah, so the um So there's a big there's a series of different kind of little reveals that I feel like you're kind of continuously doing for the people who do want to kind of turn on that part of their brain and start connecting the dots. The detective brain, absolutely. Yes. Well because it's so fun. I mean it's it's a lot of fun. Um it's it's just the thing is I never want it to be required, you know. I, I would much rather somebody just... Uh, for me, there is no good or bad in terms of participant. There's no ideal. We really don't have an ideal. We do, we, um, it's very individual. I mean, to the, to the point where we are in the, the ensemble. We're all in constant talks about um, each sort of phenomena that comes up, each, each, um, each participant's, not necessarily their approach, but their presence. You know, somebody once called our work... Um, Actually, multiple people at this point have called our work uh, sentient radio dramas, mm. um, which 
I love because honestly, I think Candle House is kind of sentient by itself. The other thing is, well, the reason I say that is because people who joined us from Moonlight Serenade, a lot of them were not first time, were not first timers. A lot of them had seen Crosswires or seen Last Candle, and they were remembered. We know them already, and we change their experience accordingly. Sometimes in big, noticeable ways. Sometimes in ways that they may not even have noticed. But there were always alterations made. There are always alterations made based on what we know about them already, whether that's narrative or emotional or just personality. Uh, we we once you join us, we do not forget you. So, what keeps you? Um, hmm. <sighs> because to me there is so much that still feels unexplored um, and I, I really hope the day does not come when it feels like everything's been figured out you know that all the territory has been covered but I will still keep creating even when that's the case But I, because I, know, I also know that's never going to come I mean there's so much unexplored territory there's so much um kind of unseen and, uh, and, and so much, um, so many kind of disconnects in communication that, that, that we still have, that I, that I still have with other people. And I think for as long as, you know, for as long as picking up the phone is an unfamiliar or fascinating or disturbing or um, unsettling, I suppose, or, in my opinion, radical act, we will keep creating. Because connection, not to, not to sound totally old-fashioned, but I, I think that in a lot of ways connection is in shorter and shorter supply. And I, I don't think it's a result of any one particular thing. I certainly don't think it's necessarily a result of technology. Um, I just think it's, it's a lot of different factors all colliding at once. And... At this point in history, as has been the case in other points in history, we, you know, isolation is is definitely a larger presence, a scarier monster under the bed than it was. Um, so to keep creating and keep kind of pushing against that and say you are, you know, and 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 have, helping people understand um, through these stories that they are seen, they are heard. Um, and that there are still connections to be made. There are still, um, there is still unexplored, um, unexplored emotional territory. Um, and to keep inviting people on those on those journeys with us to explore that and to um, uh, to kind of come to that understanding together, as long as. As long as the kind of kinetic energy remains to do that, I will keep creating. Um, yeah. That's great to hear. So we've covered um, a lot of territory. <laughs> For anyone that wants to join you on a journey in the future, how should they find you? Ah, well, um, our our Instagram is the safest bet. Um, we all the relevant links are there. Email, website. Um, Plus, some gorgeous art by Daniel Hendon at Daniel Does Art, I guess, on Instagram. Please go commission him. He's lovely, or at the very least, look at the art. Um, the, uh, our, our Instagram is Candle House Collective. 
Our website is also candlehousecollective.com, and an email you can contact us at is storyteller at candlehousecollective.com. Awesome. Anything else you want to say to our listeners? Yes, two things. One, um, <laughs> big, uh, big thank yous to just a few people. Um, thank you immensely to um, Jonathan Connolly and John Ertman, the directors of Moonlight Serenade, and um, sort of uh, constant artistic... Um, presences throughout this that I, I appreciate and um, admire to the moon and back, um, to the inimitable cast of Moonlight Serenade, uh, Ray Covey, um, Riley Nelson, Jack Drummond, Alessandra Hernandez, uh, Daniel Hendon, and Leo Merrick, um, and to each and every one of our participants who has joined us or hasn't joined us yet but will in the future. Um, we cannot wait for you to see what we have in store. I am, I for one, am very, very excited to introduce you to the next monster under the bed. Great. And on that note, thank you so much, Evan. This has been a pleasure. Once again, I want to thank Evan Nyden of Candlehouse Collective for being our guest on the show and Catherine for doing the host duties in New York City. All right. We are halfway through May. Um, May kind of just got away from me. Um, for those of you who've been kind of tracking what's going on in my own world, uh, my own world, my life, uh, my mom's back from the hospital, which is good. Uh, there's some you know big adjustments there uh, when someone comes back from the hospital. So uh, I was literally doing some of that uh, right before I recorded. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting back into the groove here. Um, we I, I realized the other day that we actually had a really strong start to May. I was feeling kind of out of it because of what had happened um, and, and sort of really kind of feel like I'd taken a body blow there uh, because, you know, jumping away from the day job so that I can put all my efforts into no pro, into uh, an event for next year, um, into the work that's going on over at Leia, into some long gestating plans uh, with some uh, friends of ours. Uh, that are related to no pro um, and and just also just absorb and enjoy how much is going on on the live immersive side on the digital immersive side there's there's an energy uh, that's been unleashed and um, I felt kneecapped right at the start uh, because suddenly you know uh, family matters um, and then I, I looked back and I saw you know, what we've been able to do and that we did Vader Immortal and I went to Dandelions and we, we got the word out there and we're still cranking through and the team's just, just freaking amazing. And we've got Fringe coming up and we're preparing uh, to cover those shows and that's going to be fun. But before that, we've got Overlook coming up and all signs point towards... Uh, you know, no disaster, you know, keeping me from, from going to New Orleans and just exploring that. And then beyond, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot happening this summer. There, there's shows opening up. There's, there's people taking big leaps into the space. Um, there's the Oculus Quest coming out, you know, next week, which I still got to find a way to get my 
hands on one. Um, I'm, I'm, I, that's actually the task today that I got to go do probably after, right after I post this. Um, all this stuff is, is good. It's fine. It's exciting. Um, there's, uh, I've been reading Stephen Pressfield's War of Art again. Uh, maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe you're not. Uh, Pressfield was the uh, is the writer of the Legend of Bagger Vance. Um, I'm not a big golf guy. He's a very big golf guy. There's a lot. This this book was written like early 2000s. There's there's a lot about Tiger Woods uh, in it. You know that was an era. That was that was a different time uh, before some stuff happened. Um, but I don't focus on that. I focus on uh, you know he's got this whole. Um, a philosophy he built for himself, uh, well, out of other pieces, right? Uh, about resistance, not like political resistance, not, not the good kind of resistance, but about the internal resistance that we all have and about its relationship um, to our ability to achieve things, uh, our relationship to criticism and how it, how it comes in at us and how we feel about it. Um, and this whole idea about what it means to turn pro, Right. And some of the language we've had here about, you know, what we're doing now, no pro goes pro, um, has been tied to one of my earlier reads of Pressfield. Um, I, this copy I have is so beat up. Like the only, the only two books I think that I have that are more beat up or equivalently beat up are, uh, my first copy of Keith Johnstone's Impro, which if you don't know Impro, ooh, you need to. Uh, and, uh, one of my copies, yeah, I decided one of my copies of James Carse's finite and infinite games. And honestly, you take those three books together and look, I love me some Campbell. Uh, I, 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 there's all kinds of fiction books, uh, that I adore and have shaped me. There's, you know, Mage the Ascension as a role-playing game has shaped me and a lot of the way I think about the world. Uh, and then there's, um, uh, um, there's works of Ken Wilber, uh, there's all of Douglas Rushkoff's work, all of those, uh, you know, are important. But I think if you take those three, like when I need my fundamentals, when, when I have to come back and remind myself of who I am, I usually turn to one of those three books. So either the war of art, impro or finite and infinite games. And the funny thing about kind of each of those is that, you know, I, I was, I was impro being the exception impro was like kind of held on a pedestal before I read it. Uh, the other two kind of just like stumbled upon, uh, mage led me to, uh, find out in infinite games. And honestly, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember how I, I wound up at Pressfield might've been, because I had read Robert McKee's story and I saw a reference somewhere. I was looking for things, or maybe it was even from like getting things done, uh, that book, which is just about organizing stuff. Um, and, and there's just, there's a rhythm to those works and sort of together they, they form Voltron is what I'm trying to say. I figured out how to form Voltron. Anyway, um, wasn't expecting necessarily to talk about that, but I, I take comfort and solace and energy and excitement from the prospect that there's this great moving forward, which has begun. And even though I had my eyes elsewhere, uh, definitely we've been doing the work and that excites me and there's more work to come. 
and I'm scheming and plotting and planning and, or, and most importantly, organizing, because that's the thing that matters, organizing uh, some stuff that uh, will sort of uh, make, make up is not right. I feel like I'm behind the curve. I've definitely, particularly since post-IDS, I've just been so, so in the mire. Um, but it's not about making up for lost time at all uh, because there's been no time lost. I want to celebrate where we are and what we've done. We've had a big milestone at the start of the year, which was five years of no proscenium, five years of the newsletter. And in a couple of weeks now, we hit episode 200 of the podcast. These are big moments. Um, And I'm so grateful that you're still on the journey with us. All right. That's enough for now. Uh, There's work to be done. I'm going to go do it. Uh, Work for all of us, which feels really good. Okay. The music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. The sustaining backers of No Persinium are Mark Baltazar, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurstan, Sam Kinkin, and Samuel Mustry. You can contact us. Find everything you need at nopersinium.com or at nopersinium on Twitter and Facebook or at no underscore persinium on Instagram. And you can, if you have a show announcement, hit us up at pitches at nopersinium.com. That is the preferred way along with our Airtable if you find the link on the website if you dig around. Patreon.com slash nopersinium is how you help us pay the bills. Literally, literally pay the bills. There are bills associated with this and we need to pay them. So please uh, help us out. Uh, If you can, a dollar a month makes a world of difference. You would be surprised. All right. On that note, my name is Noah Nelson. I've been your host. And until next time, I'll see you at the show.